Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast. It's a self-isolation special featuring me, Mike Calvin, Seb Stafford-Bloor from Football 365 and Adrian Clark, the tactical analyst. We'll be holding the fort over the next few weeks. We'll dwell on the big issues and the little things that mean a lot. Speaking of which, high-quality United retained the Bhutan Super League title over the weekend. Tenzin Finlay headed the winner and went into the Erling Haaland meditation celebration. Absolute scenes. Nice reminder of what passes for normality in football, isn't it, Seb? Yeah, thanks for coming to me with that one, Mike. It's great. It's tested my knowledge of the Bhutan Premier League, which I have to say, actually, it's got some of the finest crests you can ever see in world football. If you look at um, High Quality United, it's like this sort of abstract teenager's tattoo type affair. So that's recommended. But yeah, no, I've read the Wikipedia page. That's what I'm bringing to this podcast. That's good. Now, will you read the minds for me, Aid, of the uh, players of a certain age who are playing down in Australia at the moment? What would you have done at about 33? I would have absolutely hopped on a plane and, and gone to play in the A-League, I think. No, quite a few um, of the guys, recognisable names are over there at the moment. Stephen Taylor and Gary Hooper there. They're at Wellington Phoenix. Wes Houlihan, Joe Ledley. Just been in action, actually, today for Newcastle Jets. Craig Noon is at Melbourne City. So, yeah, no, it's a good place to go. And, and I have to say that watching a little bit recently, because it's the only football you can see on TV right now, it's um, the standard's OK. It's technically really good. Um, some some nice football. And I did read an interview from Simon Cox, who, who recently left Southend to go there. And he said it's championship level without the heat. So he says, because it's so slow, because of the heat and humidity, it's more like a League One game to watch. But he feels technically it's championship. So look, the A-League is decent. But how much longer will it be on for? I suspect they might pull it sooner rather than later. Well, you look at it, you've got the Aussie rules has uh, been closed down. The NRL, the big rugby league competition has been closed down today. So, yeah, I think you're probably on the right lines there, Aid. If you look at the scene over the weekend, um, Adam LaFondra, as you said, Aid was playing in the Sydney Derby, scored the opening goal, did this great sort of uh, gesture to a non-existent crowd. That then basically bore out the fact that even when football gets back, it's very likely to be behind closed doors. Seb, what are the pros and cons of that, do you think? 
it's really hard to discuss this in football terms at the moment because it just seems in a, so inappropriate. But I suppose one of the arguments you could make is the pro is probably that it, obviously that it keeps people safe. Also that it creates some semblance of normality. The obvious con is how alien it all feels. Now I watched a bit of the, I, you quite rightly, Mike, I mean, the, the, the NRL closed down this morning. Uh, the A-League had a, a meeting scheduled, I think, for later today to discuss their future. But I, I, I watched some of the NRL over the weekend and it, it's, it's bizarre to hear the players calling out to each other. It's very strange to see that level of competition occurring within no atmosphere. So in the Premier League, you're thinking of, if you were you know, covering it from a media perspective, then you're listening to players calling to one another, to the referees issuing instructions and to the managers howling from their technical areas. I think the great con is that it's diet sport, isn't it? It becomes sport for sport's sake. It becomes an exercise in fulfilling duties rather than entertainment and enjoyment. It's all speculation because we've never, this is uncharted territory. We don't know what this is going to be like. And there's a little bit of me which is actually fascinated by the idea of an empty stadium game because we've seen this in the Champions League before when I know it's never quite been empty because people always seem to find a way around this problem. But you know, stadiums have been closed for other reasons, violence, hooliganism, racism. So we've sensed that a little bit, but I, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm very conflicted about it too because I, I, I don't know enough about coronavirus to know what's right. I don't understand it well enough and I don't have a detailed enough uh, oversight of what would be the right thing to do. It's, it's very, very strange. It is. And as you say, you know, it is inappropriate to talk about it, given the, the current social circumstances. Oh, you know, I've covered a couple of behind closed doors games. And what struck me was you are able to hear everything that's going from the bench. As a player aide, did you ever take any notice of what was shouted at you from the bench? Oh, goodness me. Well, I was a winger and I used to much prefer it when I played on the opposite side <laughs> to the technical area because managers were compelled to talk me through the game when I was on the near side and it used to drive me absolutely nuts. Um, I hated it. But, but on the flip side, when you were playing well on the side of a manager then I, th I felt like they took more notice than if you were on the far side taking the ball past players. They could barely see it. So, so <laughs> I was slightly conflicted. But, but no, it's, um, it's not good for, for players. I, th I think if anything comes out of this, it is how important fans are. And, and maybe just maybe football clubs, football... I think football players have always appreciated supporters. But, you know, one of the things that hopefully good and positive that will come out of this is that we all appreciate the part that football fans and supporters have to play inside the stadium because the sport without it isn't a patch on, on what we're used to is it it's it's more like watching a training session so look who, who knows if it's a sacrifice we've got to make to get these leagues finished I think we would all do it I think that the players would do it the clubs would do it but personally because of the financial uh, hit it would provide clubs, and for the reasons that we've outlined, I think it has to be a last resort. I personally would rather wait until we're all in a position where we can um, be close to one another again and, and, and kick the football off once more with, with full stadiums. And, and can you imagine, boys, the excitement mm -hmm. of football's return and the buzz inside the stadium that first time we return? I think that's what we've got to cling on to, how good it's going to be when normality finally resumes. What strikes me, Seb, is the role that fans want to play in all this. Um, I was contacted yesterday by the Millwall Supporters Association 
They're talking to other fan groups about a basic idea of delivering basic packs of food and other essentials to NHS staff at hospitals. So the idea is there's a concerted campaign by football supporters to actually be a, a force for social good. Is that the sort of thing you're hearing and you think could work? Yeah, I think so. I mean, because I think it's a really influential demographic and I think uh, one of the roles supporters and supporters groups can play is to is to lead by example essentially i mean it's a wonderful initiative by Mill. i mean i've heard similar instances around the country of um manchester the city of manchester united fans um joining together to stock food banks something similar happening in liverpool but i think it's also it's good because it represents the idea that people understand the seriousness of this situation and that we've had um problems around the country with people ignoring advice about gathering in big groups and if if football fans on mass can sort of lead the way and so this is this is something we need to combat together and we're prepared to kind of put down tribal rivalries to fight it then that's a tremendous example it's a great asset to this issue yeah well you've i know i had similar experiences talking to the phil wallace the the stevenage owner can you explain some of that Absolutely, yeah, absolutely fantastic initiative from Phil Wallace. Look, I played for Stevenage. Phil Wallace was the chairman back then as well. He's a, he's a good man. And basically he said, look, we're not a football club. For here and now, we are not a football club. We are a community project. And he basically is, is using all of his existing staff, including the players, by the way, or the, those that are able to be involved. And he has set up um, different facets within the ground, but but one is, is is a chat line for anyone elderly, lonely, that's self-isolating, that they can just pick up the phone and call this line and, and have conversations and, and, and just talk, which we know is so, so important for, for mental health. They are gathering as much food as they can to take to, to food banks and, 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 and storing it there. And, and then they're also going to deliver packages to the most vulnerable in the community and I think some of the players are, are going to be involved in that and I think they're going to be cooking up some some food as well for the elderly so I think it's brilliant on the outside of the ground as well it's really symbolic actually on the on the board that says the next fixture it says Stevenage versus the coronavirus and, and I think you know that's what they're trying to do it, it's brilliant and I, and I would imagine a lot of football clubs will follow suit but yeah bravo to Phil Wallace to Stevenage um, for for setting this up it's brilliant. I suppose this all opposes the question, Seb, that whether football can be more than the game. You know, we, we are talking about social action. We've seen the initiatives that Chelsea have made. There's a fantastic, I thought, piece of empathetic leadership by Gareth Southgate. Will Sahar is doing stuff. You know, Gary Neville has uh, opened up his hotel for the NHS staff. Wolves have donated a thousand masks and thirteen hundred. Uh, protective suits that is a huge social movement waiting to be put into action isn't it it is i sometimes feel like there is a great deal of benevolence in the game obviously not quite on this scale because either these are exceptional circumstances but i think um by removing the headline portion of the sport by taking the action away it's kind of it's provided a focus on some of these people and some of these groups and some of the it also might help to dispel some of the um the assumptions and prejudices that people harbor towards football fans it shows the game at its best and i think that's a really important thing obviously it's taken something absolutely horrendous to provoke that 
But it, it's very heartening to see. I, if I can just add Stephen Naismith's work to your list there, Mike, because I, you know, he's another player that's been willing to challenge this head on. And although it's sort of he doesn't want the publicity, seemingly uh, Andrew Robertson's doing an awful lot of good as well. So it shows the game's best face. And, and, and sometimes I'm, I'm frustrated at sort of the lack of opportunities the sport has to do that. And so if there is a, a positive to take from it, then absolutely it's this. Yeah. I, and you do see players stepping up, as you just said there, Seb. Odion Agarlo has been a feel-good story anyway at Manchester United. It's great to see a fan playing for a club and, you know, obviously fulfilling a childhood dream there. I thought what he said about his contract rundown as being insensitive in the current times was very important. And we're almost seeing a new form of hero evolve here, aren't we? Well, I think footballers have always had a conscience. Out in the community, it doesn't get publicised much, but... But the vast majority of players are more than happy to get out there and do the bits and bobs for the the local foundations, the club foundations, the charities and whatnot. It's just difficult to find the time. Now, obviously, footballers have time to sit there and reflect and and think about how to help. And it's brilliant to see it. As for Igalo on the contract issue, absolutely. I mean, goodness me, surely football can find a way to prioritise. And uh, and I would imagine those players out of contract on, on June the 30th, sh- there'll be a unilateral decision, I would imagine, just to extend it until the end of the season as we know it. It's quite simple. You can even have an open-ended date on it if we don't know that. Just put to the end of the 2019-20 season. It, I don't think this is the time for players to be bailing out and moving on. Uh, and I don't think that they will. Yeah, Probably this one is for you, primarily, Aid. There's a lot of talk about players having to take pay cuts because of this. What is your view of that? And, you know, when you look at, say, a lower league pro, 80% of his income would be around about that £2,500 mark, wouldn't it? They've got mortgages to pay and they've got worries financially, haven't they? Yeah, look, I've been there in, the, in League One and, and League Two. And yes, absolutely. I mean, not everybody. Some people will be over it, but... But those that are over it will be in a more comfortable situation, won't they, financially? It's a difficult one. It really is. I do hope that clubs take up the government on that and claim the 80% of wages um, for players um, because why wouldn't they? Why shouldn't they? Should it fall on the responsibility for the players to help out everybody else? Not necessarily, I don't think. We haven't heard a lot from the FA, haven't heard a lot from the PFA, the Premier League, I, I guess they're banging their heads together. I, at least I, I hope they are in terms of looking at their own cash reserves and resources and thinking, how can we put this to use to save football clubs lower down the pyramid? And, and that includes going into the, the National League and beyond as well, because they have players to pay. I'm, I'm conflicted on it because you know that if Premier League players agreed to take a 25% reduction in their salary to set up a fund you know that instantly it would provide the support that football needs further down the pyramid. And and with all of us, we're all taking a hit on, on our money, aren't we, at the moment, especially those of us that work in the, in this industry. You know, why can't footballers do that? It'd be, it'd be a great gesture. Maybe it would be something we see in, in a few weeks' time because it, it would be life-saving. But, but I don't necessarily think it should all fall onto the players. There's plenty of money flying around the game 
and not a lot of it at the moment is heading towards those smaller clubs. Hopefully that situation alters in the days to come. Mm. Interesting, Seb, listening to Rick Parry, the new EFL chief, where he's basically saying the Football League shouldn't go in cap in hand to the Premier League and, and ask for financial support from those who can afford to provide it. Now, I thought that was you know, rather submissive. I don't know what you felt about it. I felt a bit uneasy, actually, Mike. I mean, I, I'm not... Um, it's not very difficult to do the maths, is it? If you look down, right down to the, the bottom of the pyramid, League 2, also given what's happened to Bury and you know what's been happening to Macclesfield up until this point... It worries me this weird little, this weird amount of pride in Rick Parry's statement. It strikes me as, as being indicative of a lack of pragmatism almost. I don't really understand what the solution is for clubs that are reliant on match day revenue. I don't know whether the Football League is really taking the long term future of its clubs seriously enough. Can I, can I also just add something um, to, on, on the question you asked, Adrian? Maybe, maybe now is a really good time for someone like Gordon Taylor to lead by example with his enormous salary. There'll be a first. Yeah, but this this is, I'm not joking. I, I think um, I agree with Adrian completely. The burden does not fall on players um, to perform a sort of their own um, ad hoc bailout, but it would be a nice gesture. I think it would be a nice end of his tenure for Gordon Taylor to actually say, right, well, maybe this is a point for me to intervene and this is a nice way to correct certain parts of my legacy given what I earn out of football. I think that would be most appropriate. Well, certainly the PFA don't seem to have been proactive. Let's put it as charitably as that. Yeah. I would have expected them to be a much more upfront with this. I struggle sometimes to work out what the PFA actually does. You know, they're very self. There's a lot of self-aggrandisement, but I can't see exactly what they do. Now, you'll you'll be able to tell me, Aid. Yeah, well, they'll they'll say, Mike, and they, they, just a lot of degrees they do. They will say they're there to protect the interests of the players. Now, in their heads, right now. <laughs> protecting the wages of the players might be at the forefront of their minds. Should it be? No, it really shouldn't. Not the Premier League players, not those that are that are earning an absolute fortune. I absolutely agree with Seb, and I think that's a, that's a really clever shout. It needs Gordon Taylor to go to the players, to go to those earning, let's say, over... 50,000 a week or 20. I don't know what the cutoff is. I mean, anyone earning over 10 grand a week will be able to sacrifice something, I'm sure. Most people are down on their money at the moment. And and I, I don't think it would be terribly received by the players. I genuinely don't. I really don't, given the climate around the country. If Gordon Taylor took the ball by the horns and, and went to the, the Premier League players earning X amount or above and said, look, I think we should donate 20%. Or 25% of our money to a fund um, that will be set up to, to save football but beneath us in the pyramid. I, absolutely, it, it wouldn't it wouldn't really hurt or damage those players, and it would um, create a much more positive legacy for the PFA and for Taylor. Yeah. Do you think, Seb, there is a danger of us losing some of those smaller community-focused clubs? I think it's absolutely inevitable. Last week, I uh, I did a piece on um, on Bar City, who've just had um, planning permission for a local redevelopment rejected by the local council. And um, I spoke to a, a member of staff there, and, and it was outlined to me just how severe this challenge is without match day revenue and without that flow of income. I don't see a way around it, Mike. Without the work of local fundraising, without local charity, and I mean charity in the inverted commas sense, 
without that or without a, a benefactor there to um to underwrite costs and losses and debts i don't know what the alternative is i i haven't yet really heard of a proper plan to safeguard these clubs future and these aren't necessarily just you know football league clubs these are local community clubs you know places in you know the national league the southern league even below that I and mean, where is the where is the contingency to look after the sport because it is the sport the sport does not begin and end with the premier league or even the top six clubs in the country it extends all the way down throughout the country to grassroots and i it feels to me like there aren't enough people in this country who take that seriously enough it angers me because it's 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 so negligent i'm not sure what community is without care and consideration for those things and so i'm really waiting for somebody to put their head above the pulpit and and answer that question really Alexander Seferin has been talking about this being a reset of world football. If you look at the Euros, for instance, you know, as it's set up, a tournament staged in, in 12 cities, that could well be impractical even when we begin again, couldn't it, Aid? It could be, but hopefully we'll, we'll be away and in the clear, hopefully, and none of us know that, do we? And if we are, actually, I think... In a way, having the twelve cities would would be even more fitting than it would have been before. Because I, I thought it was a slightly nonsensical idea initially, but actually spreading the love around Europe at a time when we all need to come together again post coronavirus might just be a, a great way of doing it. But look, who knows? We, none of us know what how we're going to be in a, in a year's time, do we? Um, yeah, look, this is a lot of water to go to, to go under the bridge between now and then but look I, I go back to the point just imagine how good it's going to be that that is in this period of such negativity how exciting is it going to be to have the euros the women's euros the olympics potentially all all in the same summer of 2021 that would be that'd be a great way to bounce back wouldn't it yeah well i, I think you're probably right the olympics i think will be probably put back to 2021 if you look at the practicalities of a restart there is some talk already um china are about eight weeks ahead of us in the the whole covid19 cycle and there's some talk of whether clubs could end up playing there so for instance there's already talk in the south china morning post of the milan derby being restaged at the bird's nest in Beijing. No, no. What do you think, chaps? <laughs> um, Premier, no you know, chance. Premier League, no. Premier League in, in China? No, because well, I, tell, I tell you what, and I, I hope this is taken in the way that I mean it. That would set a very dangerous precedent. There could potentially be an argument to say that hosting a, a football match of, of, of that calibre is beneficial to a region and helps the recovery, and I'm all for that. But if you think that that isn't going to be manipulated later in the future for some kind of 39th game nightmare by somebody, because this is already happening in the world, you know, already games are being hijacked and taken to other countries to make money. That is the essence of the sport. You cannot, you cannot allow that. And, and I, I, I think it is highly manipulative, the idea of, right, well, we're going we're gonna to put it on here because we can make money out of this now. Um, very That is a very, very slippery slope. Um, and it's one which scares me. Yeah, and you've got to retain the integrity of the league. We, we, we're saying we we need to indefinitely prolong the end of the season so that it finishes for, for reasons of fairness. And we know that it will be impacted. Other factors will come into play that are slightly unfair, i.e. returning players, etc., from 
from injury. But you can't go losing home games to go over and play in China. It, it would make a, an absolute nonsense of of the league. So no, it's a, it's a non-starter for me. Yeah, a lot of uh, clubs are postponing training sessions. Um, you know, some were meant to be during today, others tomorrow, and they're they're basically saying stay at home, chaps. In your experience, Adrian, uh, now you played at every level from the Premier League down to the Conference South. How easy is it to lose your edge if you don't have that regular match practice and match fitness? Well, every player is different, first and foremost. There were some players that I played with that could do nothing for a month, six weeks, and come back and they'd be fit as a fiddle and absolutely flying. And then there'd be others, and I was probably one of them, that it would take you know a number of training sessions to get ready for a game and then a number of games to get properly sharp again. But the bottom line right now, Mike, is none of that really matters. I, 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 don't, I don't really care about players losing their edge, particularly. It's one of those situations where, whereby we have to get on with it. So when the world is ready for football to resume... I don't think football players and managers will need more than two or three weeks' notice to get sharp, to get ready, just to have a mini pre-season, to have practice games on the training ground. No friendlies. We can't have public friendlies. We haven't got the time. That's all they'll need, two or three weeks. And look, if, if they're not quite right, so be it. We, we kind of have to, have to crack on uh, and get on with it. Everybody will be in the same boat at least. So, so that's that's my view on it. It's it's not easy for players. There might be a greater risk of injury. There might be, but but in the grand scheme of things of life and where we stand right now, I don't even think that that is of paramount importance. Yeah, understood that, mate. I suppose if we can't look forward with any degree of certainty, we can look back. Seb, Brian Clough would have been eighty-five on Saturday. Mm. Um, I was watching, um, you know, Believe in Miracles um, <laughs> yeah. last last evening. You know, just to, for the, about the umpteenth time, just <laughs> to give you, a, you know, a fantastic insight into what he did with that club. Now, my memories of him were my first ever away trip as a as a, a very very young sports writer was uh, with Forest in the second year they won the European Cup uh, into uh, East Berlin and they played Dynamo Berlin. And Cluffy was just a force of nature. His relationship with Peter Taylor is still intriguing. What's your take on that? I think it's a tragedy because Clough and Taylor is is, a, is such an unusual partnership in the game because it's, it doesn't really exist now, didn't really exist in the same way in terms of not really two equal partners because Clough was always the, the charisma and he was always the dynamism and he was always the, he was always the one on on doing punditry on TV and in the papers. But it was just, it seemed like such a perfect marriage in terms of what their attributes together allowed them to do. And I, for those who, over who don't know, obviously the, the fr- real fracture in the partnership was um, when Peter Taylor wrote uh, With Clough by Taylor, which is his autobiography, which is a, a very, very strange dynamic for anybody's autobiography to be written about somebody else, essentially. It's a terrific book, but it's... um it's still slightly bizarre and Clough never forgave him. And I, well, the real tragedy of course would be that Peter Taylor passed before they could ever um, repair their relationship. And I, that's kind of in anything written about that partnership, that's really paragraph two or three now, sadly, it's this situation where you can't talk about them without this dreadful ellipsis at the end of it. And um, 
It's a shame also because I, I don't think Peter Taylor is remembered as he should be, as a mind, as someone that that spotted players. I mean, there are so many stories. The one, the one that I always come back to is the Gary Bertels one, where you know uh, Clough organised a training match for Taylor to have a look at Bertels, and he was absolutely rubbish <laughs> in the game. But he produced one little moment, a little drag back, a little piece of skill. Um, I was actually going to try and ask Gary Bertels this once in a press room in um, yeah at the press room <laughs> at Molyneux, but he he he. Um, he shamed me for for not having a dessert, but Taylor had that sort of that elusive thing that we're still still celebrating in in scouts today, covered in your book actually, Mike. Where it's just it's almost like a, a supernatural quality. Look at a player, see him for a couple of minutes. Yes, he's got it. And Taylor had that. And as a result of the the fracture in his his relationship with Clough, and he's kind of been carved out of that story in a way. Um, and that's a terrible, terrible shame. I think it's, uh, you know, forget the football aspect of it. As a human tragedy, they were great friends. They were confidence for a long time. You know, Taylor was crucial when when Clough lost his playing career through injury. And it's terribly sad. Do you think uh, that a player responds to a distinctive type of management? Uh, and, and has that process changed over the years? I thought it was really interesting. You know, John McDermott is going to the FA as assistant technical director from Spurs. I think it's a brilliant appointment, very empathetic management. He did a, a wonderful thing with uh, Jaffet Tanganga where he just sensed that the lad was losing a bit of focus uh, when he was in his later stages uh, of his scholarship. And he sent him to work with the ground staff for two weeks just so that he appreciated that some people work a lot harder for their living than he did. Has the nature of management changed fundamentally? Well, I think that that aspect of, of management has existed since we began and it will continue to play a major part. It's knowing the right buttons to press, isn't it, at the right times. It's knowing each individual pretty much inside out and, and being aware of that. And, and Brian Clough was brilliant at it, a great motivator, great man manager, and knew exactly when to... Pr- you know, poke the bear and when to stand back and, and, and treat the players to something unexpectedly nice at times. It's just keeping them motivated, getting them to think about where they are at that that moment in time. And, and that's great to hear in regards to McDermott and Tanganga. It's smart. And he's not the only guy that will have, will, will have done that down the years. And, and I think footballers like him, will probably look back on their careers in, in you know, 10, 20 years' time and say, you know what, that was a big moment for me. Thank you. I'm so glad that he thought outside the box because I did need that at the time. I did need reminding that that you need to work hard um, for a living, to, that, that there is life outside football of what what I might have to do if I don't, if I don't make the grade. So, yeah, but people like John McDermott are absolutely invaluable to the education of younger players in particular. And that, it sounds like a great appointment. Look, he he was in charge of that academy for a long, long time and did a lot of lot of positive work, pastoral care of players in particular. I know it was, it was a big thing. Um, so, look, yeah, the FA have got a good man there by the sound of it. Staying on Spurs, another one for you, Seb. Daniel Levy uh, told fans that, and I quote, he doesn't believe there's a direct correlation between winning and spending money. It's all about making the right decisions. Discuss. 
Yeah, I mean, in a sense, he's right in the kind of disingenuous, hugely reductive way. Yes, that's that's true. Um, <laughs> but you need uh, the caveat in here is yes, you do need to spend money, but you need to spend it in the right ways. I mean, the other side of that argument is having money is no guarantee of success, and I completely agree with that. I think you're um, you're quoting that from the um, Tottenham Supporters Trust. Um, Very good organisation, by the way. Yeah, terrific. The work of Martin and Kat is brilliant, and they get an awful lot of grief online, which they absolutely don't deserve. Um, they're brilliant. They're, they're a huge benefit to the club. What concerns me is that there's no real recognition within that of um, Tottenham being where they are almost solely because of the work done by Maurizio Pochettino. Now, time will tell whether I'm right or wrong about this, but I would urge Daniel Levy not to conflate making a what was kind of a happy accident of an appointment that turned out far better than anyone could ever have imagined with actually making a series of very good decisions uh, within the football department of a club. I think those two are very different things. And uh, one, it shouldn't instruct what happens going forward. The need for money is one of the great primacies of modern football. There's no getting away from it, whether we like or not. That's just the reality. You do need to have money. You do need to be able to spend a lot on transfers and pay huge amounts in wages. There is a balance, absolutely. But let's not get carried away. You can't do modern football in a successful way on a budget. Just can't happen. Yeah, Mr Levy is a hero to some, a villain to many. Um, on, <laughs> on that theme... You know, we're all searching for our football fix in as any way we can. I rewatched the Maradona movie at the weekend, and that prompted a whole sort of flood of memories. You know, personal ones. You know, I was at, I was at the hand of God goal in in '86 and saw him, you know, drugged up in the the U.S. World Cup, and basically out of control as Argentina manager in South Africa in 2010. You know, that's an extraordinary life. And I try to bring it back down to him as a footballer. And, you know, it, to me, he's almost the, the, the football Nureyev. If you see him with a ball at his feet, it just basically obeys his to command and is sinuous in his running. He's got huge strength, but great delicacy, as, as, as though that feels a bit strange to say. To me, he's still quite probably the greatest ever player. What do you mm. think, Aid? Uh, well, uh, I, I don't want to sit here and say he's not the greatest because per, my personal view is, is that it's Lionel Messi, but I know that he hasn't carried Argentina to, to World Cup triumph, and, and he, you know, in the eyes of a lot of people, that that's something he needs to do. So I don't want to detract from Maradona, but Maradona was a genius, and everything that you say is absolutely bang on. The ball was his friend, and I had the pleasure of, of watching him back in the day as a kid. And uh, in, in the flesh, actually, a centenary game. I think it's the Football League centenary match at Wembley he played. And I was just so excited. As a, I think I was about 10. So, so Maradona's, it's amazing. And, it, and, he, and he's t you could just see he was a class apart even then. But, but yeah, watching the documentary the other night was an absolute treat, wasn't it? What, what a player. And, he, and he, he, did, he produced all that brilliance under such intense pressure and scrutiny. And I think that is... Because <laughs> carrying the hopes of uh, of Naples, you know, on your shoulders pretty much single-handedly is is not... I would imagine that's one of the hardest things you could ever do as a as a professional footballer. And, and he did it. And he did it um, with style and swagger and, and, and by being himself, didn't he? 
yeah, what a player. He's villainous in in many ways. If we're going down that route in terms of his personality, he's a, he's a flawed character. You know, I've met him before, and and he wasn't particularly nice. Let me tell you, he really wasn't. Um, he, he messed us around. He was quite rude and abrupt, and uh, yeah, not 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 obliging in the way that Pele was. You know, I was lucky enough to meet him. So he's not not necessarily a great fella, but as a footballer. Just, just pure genius. We saw that on the documentary. I remember talking to Pele about uh, Maradona, and he came up with a fantastic phrase, which was, "The angel walks with the devil." Do you get that, Seb? Yeah. <laughs> I just want Mike. I just wanted to ask about um, you were filing copy from the Hand of God game. Did you get the handball in what you phoned in, or, or did you have to have it correct it later? It was one of those. It, it was a bit like a sort of depth charge. We worked it out about five minutes later. We were on running copy, and at the time it looked weird. It was, it was to the goal to our left, and you know I don't know what you feel. I, I do I do the same thing when I when I see penalties awarded. You actually judge what's gone on by the reaction of the players. Yeah, and and the players basically you know they weren't having any, any price around them, and so you you knew something had gone on, but weren't quite sure immediately so for practical purposes of doing the piece you know we got around it quite quickly but uh yeah there was a what used to happen in those days was basically it was the press box became a self-help group everyone asked one another did you see it did you see it what do you think so then we basically went with the uh, the, the majority it was, a, it was a, it was a really weird game because the angel and the devil well Okay, you can say that the the handball was the devil, but the other goal was the greatest goal I've ever seen scored, and it was one of those ones where you just exclaim. You know, I, I won't use the words I used on this podcast, <laughs> but it was a, a wow, gosh, golly, you know, it was unbelievable. And I suppose, you know, when we all sit back and think about football, a moment like that, or moments like that, capture what football's all about, and probably why we miss it so much, to be honest. Mm. So if we take that as a point, I'll be interested in your view, Seb, about Maradona and you know the whole greatest ever debate. Oh, it's it's hard because um my my sort of my personal rule about this is I, I try and only judge players that I've seen in person. The only Maradona I ever saw was the um, 1994 ephedrine version, um, which <laughs> which wasn't flattering as a portrait. I also it's hard as well because I I think. Um, seeing players on television versus the experience of seeing them live, the, seeing them as actual athletes, as physical specimens with all their technique, their ability, their vision. It's just such a different experience. Cristiano Ronaldo is still the best player I've ever seen live, I think. I haven't had the pleasure of Messi, unfortunately. But I think what I'd say is that sort of the, the mark of a really great player is, is as, a, as an opposition fan, if you're afraid every time they touch the ball, if you sink back into your seat, if you're afraid, no matter where they, they pick up possession, no matter where they are, and no matter how many defenders are covering them, if you sort of, if all your muscles contract and you push your way back into your seat, that's the mark of greatness. Like it's, it's, a, it's a level of respect, which is really, really rare in the game, really elusive. Messi obviously has that. Ronaldo definitely had it. Thierry Henry had it, um, which is very hard for me to say, given my, given my loyalties. But yeah, terrified you. And I'm sure Maradona, I mean, I, I've seen all the footage and I've, I've watched as much of Maradona as as probably anyone, but it just never live. So it's really, really hard to to have any sort of opinion about him. Right. So in the in the interest of normality, chaps, um, I know this is wildly inappropriate, 
but I wouldn't mind a couple of um, bits of transfer gossip. <laughs> uh, Adrian, um, what about Arsenal and Party from uh, Atletico Madrid? Yes, I, I think that's a, a transfer I certainly would would like to see happen. I think that when we do resume, and once the season's done and dusted, when when Mikel Arteta is allowed to to rebuild his team, his squad, someone stylistically similar to Thomas Partey, and maybe him, would be would be ideal. Yeah, I think he was brilliant against Liverpool, across both legs, looked after the ball very smartly, very sensibly, good athleticism. I think that's a, a key trait that's, that's maybe missing at the moment from the Arsenal engine room. And and I also love the way he drives forward with the ball at his feet. He's not afraid, is he, Thomas Partey, to travel with it. And and who does that remind you of? Is someone I had the privilege to, to play in the first ev- his first ever game wearing the red and white of Arsenal. It was a reserve game against Bournemouth. And that's Patrick Vieira, someone that can, can take the ball past players from that deep midfield position to, to open up the pitch himself and, and party has that. So yeah, look, for me, look, you know, I'm not, not privy to their, their scouting mechanisms, unfortunately. But if I was, and if I was to, if they were to ask me what what's the type of player that we, we should have moving forwards, I think that party would, would tick an awful lot of boxes. So yeah, hopefully um, Arsenal will be in the, the box seat to get him. I know that Atletico at, at the moment are, are maybe trying to get him to, to sign a new deal that will increase his release clause, which at the moment I believe is under fifty million, which which would make him a bargain. So, so yeah, watch this space, but stylistically, he's, he's bang right for Arsenal. Hmm. Jaden Sancho, Seb, linked quite heavily to Chelsea. Um, where would you think that he would be best served by going? It's best served by staying exactly where he is, Mike. It's one of my great bugbears that the that young players have to be in such a rush now. He's found a situation which which is helped him to grow exponentially in a very, very short space of time. Um, he's surrounded by this young clutch of players, um, including uh, Erling Haaland, of course, uh, Giovanni Reina, um, Dortmund's 17-year-old, the son of Claudio. Um, and I'd love to, from a selfish fan's point of view, I'd love to see two or three years of that trio growing together. Um, at the same time, I I fear that you know money will talk and that there's... There's been a sort of a disintegration in his relationship with Borussia Dortmund um, following events of late last year with him returning late from international duty and being subbed early against Bayern Munich. I don't think those wounds have healed. Um, But he's just playing such excellent football that I don't want to see him defaulted into a Manchester United or a Chelsea just because he is the must-have item in English football. Do Can we trust those clubs really to adapt what they are around him? Because he's a special player and he deserves it. I mean, Dortmund did. Dortmund have got the very most out of him. Um, and why, if he spent three or four years um, still at the Westfalenstadion, would he not be? Would he not have the best chance of reaching the apex of his potential? And that's what we should want. We should want to see players t- getting everything they have out of themselves. And there's nothing yet in this relationship with Dortmund who suggests that he can't do that where he is. And it would just be be a tremendous shame. That said, he'd be great at Arsenal. He'd look, he'd look lovely in red and white. <laughs> can't afford him, Adrian. You cannot afford him. <laughs> no, I know. Because <laughs> it's always interesting also that Dortmund are still um, probably number one on the list to try and get Drew Bellingham. Yeah. Um, and again, were I in Bellingham's position or his father's position, who's, who's having quite an influence on his career, 
you'd look at going to Germany and a couple of years there, that would be the perfect transition into whatever we want to call it, superstardom or whatever. Um, the flip side of that aid is when you become an established brand in football, football tends to take second place. No prizes for guessing. I'm talking about Paul Pogba. You know, we've seen him wearing a Juventus kit. Now, was that a wardrobe malfunction or was this another pointed message that I'm going to leave mm. Manchester United? Yeah, well, it's just ill-advised. It's not clever. We're just counting down, aren't we, the days, I think, for, for Manchester United to sell Paul Pogba. There's not much more to be said. I, I think he's a, he's a supremely gifted player, really talented. I personally love watching him play when he's on fire, Paul Pogba. Manchester United are, are a better team and he's, he's a joy to watch. But, but is he worth the baggage? Not now that they've got Bruno Fernandes. They've, they've got a new main man, haven't they, Manchester United? Fernandes is the player they're going to, to build around creatively moving forward. So they just need to, to sell him. And look, if Pogba wants to go to Juve and Juve wants him and they stump up the money, that, that, will, that will happen. I, I just hope that the exit can be done as tastefully as possible. Fine. Well, this is a time above all for perspective. Thanks everyone for joining us here on the Football Rights Podcast. We'll be back soon and please stay safe out there. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.